Welcome to Level Up, a podcast for independent artists navigating the Asian music industry. I'm your host, Giselle Cole. I'm a music journalist, the founder of Platform Asian Pop Weekly, and an all-around Mandopop nerd. Join me in taking control of your career as an artist, and I'll show you how to make the most of it. Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Level Up podcast. So this week we are still doing our deep dive into the world of digital distribution. Um, but this time we're going more into depth um, in terms of the greater China music market because it is a market that everyone is interested in in some aspect, be it you are a Mandarin artist who wants to learn more about the environment that you're in, or you might be a business professional who has zero idea about the greater China streaming market. Well, have no fear, because today we've invited a very special guest to help us tell the story of the greater China music market. And that special guest is my good friend and also the head of Believe Taiwan, Jim Sung. So Jim is a very good friend of mine. We met a couple years ago, but basically... He is what I would consider an expert on the Taiwan music market, especially the digital side of it, and also because he was based in Beijing for many years. So he actually has a really good grasp on what uh, mainland Chinese audiences like, what the culture is like there, and also like um, can give an overview of the mainland streaming market as well. So just before we get into the interview, I'd just like to remind everyone to subscribe to our Patreon page if you would like to get uh, some resources to go along with this week's episode. So this week, we've got um, a list of questions that you might want to ask yourself before you even start finding a distributor. So it's kind of questions that can help you formulate your plan or to make sure it's foolproof before you even start talking to a distributor about releasing your music and also a resource checklist for um, data analysis for artists. I think that's quite interesting. I don't think anyone's ever done that. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hi, Jim. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Yeah. <laughs> hello, hello. So um, I guess I can do a little bit of an intro for you now, and then you can um, expand on that yourself. So Jim is actually, we have known each other for quite a while, I think maybe five years or so. He was actually um, someone I met when I was still working with Meme Wawa. Uh, he was kind of like the first label manager that helped us with like our digital distribution releases when he was working with KK Farm and Soundscape. But then afterwards, he went on to do um, some other work in the music investment department. And then now we are working together again uh, at Believe Taiwan, where he is the head of Taiwan. Um, I guess that's like a very simple summary, but do you want to also introduce yourself and like share a little bit about yourself, Jim? Sure. So I'm Jim. Uh, like anyone who might be listening, um, before I dive into the professional side, I'm also a big uh, music lover. I like playing guitar. Uh, not not a great player by any means, but I think passion is what counts. And uh, professionally, like like you said, I work at Belize where I manage the business strategy and operations within the Taiwan team. So that's, that's how we get to work together. And um, prior to Belize, I was lucky to be a part of several other teams and projects also in the greater China region. So if we, but I feel like letting the listeners know that um, if, if we go back a bit, I actually grew up in Beijing. My, my childhood was spent mostly in Beijing where um, I studied there, but I also played in bands and, you know, just played in most of the local bars and live houses that was around back then. Mm -hmm. And so that that side of my background gave me an even stronger interest in both music as well as exploring the music within not just Taiwan but the greater China region. Mm -hmm. And and after after um, being in Beijing for about ten years, I went on to receive my bachelor degree in the U.S., where I studied music in University of Miami. Um, so so. That that's sort of my quick background. I think it was really during the college years where I began reflecting and understanding more about uh, the fact that music business is really 
business first, business as an engine to increase the probability of music going somewhere outside of our bedrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, ironically speaking, because I'm actually stuck in my bedroom because of COVID in Taipei. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's that. <laughs> Well, I think um, saying you're not very good at the guitar is an understatement. Oh, but you just started learning guitar, but you you already were playing bass before that, right? Right. So so I studied music in college, as I said earlier, and my, my principal instrument was bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and guitar is just something for fun. I think it's quite important for, um, for any music industry professionals, if they're in the music industry, to understand what they're actually working on or working with, which is music. Mm-hmm. If we're not able to understand music for a start, then you're, you're basically blindly doing your job, which is not, it's not, it doesn't make sense and it's not fun. Yeah. And I think if you are just thinking about the business end of things, then it would just turn into any other job right if you're not exactly. about the music stuff that's like a very right. interesting perspective because i i guess i'm always thinking about music business like definitely i think it has to be a collaboration between the two parts because someone once told me that if you want to be a musician fine like that's totally fine that's awesome go ahead but if you really want to make something of it for example if you're an independent artist you want a manager you want a team to help you then you really need to know what is what you're in you need to invest you need to invest your time you need to invest resources and you really need to understand how the business side of the model works and not just be like oh i want to do a mu- i just want to do music i want to do it my way and put it out and please people come and help me you know i think that's like exactly. a conception that a lot of artists have but um yeah so now let's move on more towards like the streaming side which is um a part of the industry that you are very familiar with so i -hmm. know that you were working before with kk farm which is very closely associated with kk box which is a local dsp in taiwan and obviously now we are both working at belief which is an aggregator so um between like going from that kind of like local Taiwan perspective of working with a local DSP to working with Believe, which I guess kind of has a little bit more of a global focus, but still local. What has the shift changed the way you think about the streaming market at all? When I was at KKBox, my time and effort was largely focused on the beginning of the process, which is the content creation part. Mm-hmm. And that's not because I stayed in the studios the whole time, but because I was um, I was either acting as an A&R figure or I was later on uh, analyzing and negotiating for labels and production houses to invest in. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I was always on the content creation and manufacturing side. Mm-hmm. And of course, because um, Farm um, is very closely related to KKBox structurally. So I was able to learn from the side about how specific types of DSPs functioned. But if you think about it, um, I, I was always missing that middle middle portion, which is from when the content is created to when the content actually gets to the stores. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't know how to most effectively get the contents from the factories to where it's actually sold to the consumers. But I believe um, while having the knowledge of how our upstream and downstream players works, that that knowledge helps, but I also had a lot to learn and I still do today because I feel aggregators um, is, you know, the the distribution side is a a set of knowledge to its own. And that's that's the most different part about the two. Mm -hmm. So basically the shift um, in position, it changed the way you think about it in that previously you were more at the the start of the production process, whereas now you're thinking more about, okay, what what artists can do with the finished product? Like how can they actually like put it out onto the digital platforms and like optimize it, right? Right, exactly. So so, um, I think a lot of people that get, confused about what aggregators actually do Mm -hmm. simply think of it as the middleman but in reality it's 
it's it is the middleman, but it's not just the middleman because there's there's far more beyond that from uh, providing analytics of large global data sets to tools and technology, financial support, and most importantly, what what um, our team does, which is the consulting service side of things. So all of that combined is very, very different knowledge from what I was doing at Farm or KKBox. And so having, being in belief now for, for uh, one or two years, that really helped me to get a, a, a bigger or a, a more complete view of how the full industry landscape works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely think that um, if we're talking about Taiwan as a market, it is a very interesting uh, market when we're talking about streaming and like digital music technology. So because as you said before, like believe or like aggregators, they are not just a middleman where like we literally get the information and then we pass it on. I mean, I guess some labels, they might do things in that way, but from what I understand of like what Believe does and what aggregators do or can do is that they actually add value in the process. And also because gate um like the platforms themselves, like Spotify, iTunes, KKBox, actually they are all considered like gatekeepers, right? So it's mm-hmm. like indie artists can't go and directly approach these DSPs. So it's crucial to have like a good partner in terms of um, distribution or middleman or whatever you call it in order to right. you, like to like optimize your presence on these digital platforms. So um, yeah, I wanted to also ask a little bit about the domestic streaming market in Taiwan because that's like the market that um, I guess you are the most familiar with. Like, but I also know that they are quite a mature streaming market, right? Right. It's a, uh... The, the the streaming market is quite mature as a whole, and I think uh, without getting into the details of numbers such as uh, end user growth or ARPU or market share, I could give a general view of how the Taiwan digital market is at this point in time, or how it has been evolving in the past year. Because mm-hmm. uh, I find it quite interesting if we look at Taiwan's music market. I think we were just chatting about this the other day. Mm-hmm. There's been a five percent growth rate over the past year on on the market size. So, right. so the market size is now around eighty something million US dollars. But mm-hmm. within that growth, near seventy or seventy five percent of the contribution comes from music streaming, mm-hmm. and that is quite interesting because uh, another way of understanding it this this uh, this status is. Uh, music streaming industry segment alone in Taiwan had a 10% year-on-year growth in 2020. Uh, and that's, that's an okay figure. If we think about um, other markets, um, there, there are a lot, there, there, there are many markets that we would consider mature markets, but it might be due to COVID or other factors. The year-on-year growth was a lot less than Taiwan. Mm. Of course, there are also markets that grew a lot faster, um, such as mainland China, that, that year-on-year growth was 30-something percent mm-hmm. over 2020. So so I think Taiwan is exciting. It's um, there, There's two ways to look at it. It's exciting in the sense that there's still room for growth. And at the same time, it's also a good export market or a content hub to export good content outside of Taiwan. Yeah, I think um, definitely what you're saying is like 100% correct um but definitely the taiwan streaming market is very interesting at the moment not just because mm-hmm. it's still growing like i think the fact that it was already it was it's showing so much growth despite the the pandemic that in itself is like a success story but i also wanted to ask like what do you think taiwanese audiences are like now like what are they like um and are there any trends you see in terms of the music that they are streaming the most yeah, so um, if if we look at a major progression that we've experienced in the past year, mm-hmm. uh, that that's related to Taiwan listeners' habits. There's there's been a, a shift of paid end users percentages between local and international DSP platforms, and we're constantly chatting about this. 
right? So like uh, in 2020 and up to today, paid subscribers for local DSPs have kind of fell flat or in some situations decreased, depends how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And that is happening while the overall market is is growing, as we were talking about just now. Mm-hmm. And that signals a major shift in habits. So, so that also, what's also related to that is the international platforms, on mm-hmm. the other hand, have been progressing. So Spotify and Apple growing constantly throughout the year, and YouTube Music growing exponentially to level with Spotify in terms of uh, Taiwan local subscribers. Mm-hmm. So at this point, these three international DSPs, their subscribers combined already has over 60% of the Taiwan market. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's spinning a bit far from your original question, but what I'm trying to say is this shift of consumer behavior um, kind of says something about what people want to listen to because um, in, in terms of copyright purchases and you know copyright partnerships it's likely that international platforms have a more granular or more international catalog which mm. people can select from and listen to mm. whereas taiwan dsps they also have a huge catalog but maybe it's through editorial or it's through um, the the listeners age group that causes taiwan dsps to usually chart or or place in playlists the local songs versus maybe songs from Southeast Asia, from mainland China, or Western songs. Mm-hmm. And if the fact that international platforms are rising while uh, local DSPs are falling fat, flat, um, I, I think this sort of uh, throws a signal out that, that um, people are starting to look for more, uh, more international contents. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just local music, yeah, definitely. I think you. I think you answered the question, by the way. But um, yeah, I was talking to some um artists before, and so, an interesting insight that they had for me were like was like, oh, um, I they actually have a KKBox app, and they also have like a Spotify or Apple Music app, and they use those two apps to listen to different kinds of music. So I think that really clearly shows. Uh, demonstrates like what you were talking about that um, what the DSPs um, represent is not just a store that you go to to stream music it actually like represents like a change in listener habits in a sense and um, I remember you previously told me as well that KKBox like um, platforms like KKBox on my music which are like the local Taiwanese platforms they actually um, are more centric on Chinese music content right like the users who listen to the app the content which um, works the best is Chinese music right mm-hmm. right like if we from from the most ba- basic perspective we look at the UI of the platform mm-hmm. um, on the home page it's it's clearly promoting Mandarin or local music right uh, for, for uh, that's that's for um, the the local DSPs. Whereas for the international DSPs, they treat each genre of music more. I wouldn't say more equally, but but the placement is more balanced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that with um things like New Music Friday playlists. Like this, even though the playlist is like the metadata and stuff is localized for Taiwan market or whatever the songs which are in there are not necessarily just from Taiwan. So it does make it a little bit easier, like a little bit more democratic in terms of being able to push your music into different markets that way, which is, I think it's an exciting trend. Mm -hmm. And that leads me on to like another question that um, I've got quite a lot. Like I think one year I was at um, Music Matters and then I was meeting a lot of music industry professionals who are not from Taiwan um, or like just didn't really understand the greater China music industry. And they all were telling me like my artist, this, this, this is trending. Like it's one of their top cities for streaming is like Taiwan or like maybe on Apple music, like one of that, this artist top, top streams or top countries is like China. And I actually, it was a really consistent like trend, like 
every single person I met when I told them like, oh, I'm a label manager um, with Believe Taiwan. That was like the first thing they told me. And um, I think that is a bit of a trend. So I wanted to ask your opinion on that. Like, do you know, for example, like in terms of Taiwan and maybe Spotify, like why is it that Taiwan often comes up as like one of the top streaming cities for artists who literally have no investment in the Taiwan region at all? <laughs> Do you have a guess? Be, I, I don't think there's an answer, but like, yeah. I mean, yeah, to be honest, if the question they ask is why Taiwan has high streaming numbers on Spotify in comparison to others, whether it's for themselves or for music as a, as a whole, mm-hmm. then uh, if that's the question, then I would say, hey, look, you got your information wrong. Even though maybe they looked at some backstage and assumed that was it. So entry-level artists, it's harder for them to judge how they're doing on different on dif- in different cities because the data set is so small. Ah. So maybe maybe for them, Taiwan has 200 streams while um, maybe Malaysia has 80. But it doesn't mean uh, they're doing better in Taiwan. It just means uh, they, they had better chances here. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so I think I think it's really by chance. But if we take the question a different way, as as being why Taiwan music, actually no, that that would be a different question because I I was thinking it the other way where if the question was why Taiwan music is streamed a lot, mm-hmm. then then there's a then I think there's a proper answer for it. Okay, well, if that was the question, then what, what's the proper answer? Well, I mean, so, so if we compare Taiwan with any other region that has maybe the same population, we'll likely see that Taiwan music is streamed more than the other region. And my gut feeling is that up to today, uh, specific categories of Taiwan mainstream music still has a strong uh, export potential. And of course, it will not be like the golden age, like we talked about earlier, where we had, uh, you know, where we had generated megastars to attract music consumption way beyond the physical limitation of this island. Mm -hmm. It won't be like that. But just based off of existing elements, we know Taiwan music benefits from certain advantages. Mm-hmm. Like, like first off, due to uh, historical statuses, uh, Taiwan artists benefit from attention of Mandarin-speaking population across Southeast Asia and certain parts of uh, North America. And just thinking about that, you know, Singapore and Malaysia alone has maybe seven to ten million population of Mandarin speakers who enjoy Chinese music, and mm-hmm. perhaps due to a certain extent they want to listen to those Taiwan music over other contents because that has a childhood connection yeah, for them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and secondly, um, another advantage I believe is Taiwan music's relevancy to mainland Chinese music listeners is still quite strong. It's not as strong as it was five or ten years ago or even way, way before that, but over the past decade, even with mainland's music striving, uh, thriving quickly, I, I think uh, some Taiwan music is still largely relevant uh, in, to mainland friends, particularly mm-hmm. indie rock bands or some like older pop tracks, Jay Chow or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so even if we're looking at Spotify, you know, the, the Spotify doesn't have service in mainland China, but Taiwan music can still benefit from this in the sense that any any region, regardless whether it's mainland China or any any other places, they you will have export population. Which which what I'm trying what what I, what I mean is there will be uh, you know a lot of mainland Chinese students studying abroad or people working abroad, and they're likely to use Spotify over Tencent or NetEase because they're in the U.S. or something. Mm-hmm. And when they open that Spotify, they, they'll likely listen to some Taiwan mm-hmm. music, if not a lot. For sure. Yeah. That, right. that, that actually makes like a lot of sense now that you say that about Taiwan music. And I think that also goes back to what we were discussing before, that 
the music scene is diversifying and the landscape is changing for Taiwan. It may not be what it was 10 to 15 years ago, but I still think that um, as a whole, the music landscape is becoming more about niche genres rather than like big mega superstars. Like obviously there's like I recently, like I've been talking to some like younger people. <laughs> it makes me so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talking to some younger people and then they like tell me like, oh, have you heard of like this singer or this singer or whatever? Like for example, recently I found uh-huh. this like artist called Bella Porch. Porch. I don't know how to say her name, right? right? I only just found her, right? But she's like number uh-huh. one artist on TikTok. Like number one. Okay. Right? So like we don't know things like that. So it's like like I think definitely because like information there's so much information coming at us, like people can definitely create these niche um markets for themselves in different regions around the world and things like that. And actually there's mm-hmm. a lot of value in that still. Like that should not be discounted at all. Right. Yeah, but I also wanted to go back to the topic of Spotify and like the monthly listeners because, right? yeah, I think it's definitely true what you said about um, indie artists. Maybe they just don't have enough um, data for it to give like an accurate outcome. Maybe they just like got placed by accident somewhere or like someone found them by accident, posted them in like a Reddit forum and then people are listening to that song, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're relevant. But I have heard, for example, um, other artists who are quite established and they use their Spotify monthly listeners as a way of looking at um, informing their research on which areas they want to go for like live touring. Mm -hmm. And for example, um, they have like 10,000 followers in Malaysia. And then they're like, that actually right. seems like pretty good. Like, I think I should go and um, do like a tour there. But then when they actually went and did that tour there, it wasn't it wasn't the expected outcome. So mm-hmm. I think um, what I'm trying to ask is that, what do you think is the best way for um, independent artists to use the data which they are getting from their streaming platforms? especially when they're informing like their future steps in terms of marketing plans or touring when, whenever that comes back, you know? Yeah. Um, my, the first answer off the top of my mind is only use the data as a reference. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't use it like a Bible because uh, first off, the data is, you know, you, you generate like like any data, you, you will generate different results based on the environment that the test was done in mm-hmm. or the, the time and environment that the test was done in. So, and, and this will always be past tense. When, when they're looking at the data, it's going to be, you know, data over the past week, over the past month, 90 days, mm-hmm. 24 months, whatever. And they're using the data to judge what they should be doing the next month or half a year later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And usually the outcome will be quite different because of the historical data not really matching of how fast the industry is moving. Mm-hmm. So only use it as a reference. That's the first point. And the second point is I feel we, we, we chat with a lot of artists when we're, when, we're at, when we're doing our work at Belief or when we're outside, such as when you're uh, working on uh, the Asian Pop Weekly IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and. A lot of the artists that we speak with, there tends to be a general misunderstanding where artists will use the data um, by looking at only certain figures, such as I will look at my monthly listeners because mm-hmm. for Spotify, that is a public info. So they'll look at it and assume, you know, maybe it's 10,000, 20,000, I'm quite big. Mm-hmm. Or they'll look at their overall uh, stream counts. But, but I think the more meaningful way of looking at these stats will be to to cut I, I'm not sure how to say this in English but for example if we have 10 songs mm-hmm. and there are nine songs that are between 100 and 5,000 listens while there's one song that's a million a million streams mm-hmm. I would actually cut that song off of my my planning and consideration because that one song if that's the only one that if that's way beyond or way below 
uh, you're you're norm. It's likely the song is big, but you're not, or or more like <laughs> the song is big, but it's not really affecting how right right how your reputation is at this point in time. Right. Yeah. Right. So so I would I would really you know pick whether it's the median or if it's the average of how my streams and how my performances are at that point in time. Right. So I think it's about taking these stats with a grain of salt and also like looking for an outlier. If there are any outliers or exceptions to the general rule of how your songs are performing. And then if you really want to use these stats to um, inform your future plans, then try and I guess you could look at um, the data with the top song in mind, but keep that as like your best, like best, best, best case scenario. But definitely you should also have like a normal case scenario or like a worst case scenario planned out in terms of using your data. And for me, I also think um, that since digital streaming and also like social media, they're becoming like more and more intertwined with things like um, Facebook upping their music game and also TikTok, like, Oh, like everyone's using TikTok now. So um, yeah. I I also think that it would it's very helpful to also combine the data that you or compare the data you get from streaming services and things like that with the data that you're getting from like your social media platforms because mm-hmm. they are looking at two different things. One of them is looking at people who are listening to your music, but that actually might be more passive. Whereas people yeah. who are like, for example, engaging with you on social media, like commenting, come come to this place, we want to see your show. That's like a lot of rich data that can also be used to um, corroborate, I guess, like and see whether you're getting, you can look, look at it and see if you're getting the same results from mm-hmm. um, the top, maybe top streaming territories on your DSP performances. Or if they're just like completely like not corroborated, then maybe you might, have to think again about how you want to do this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to hear your take on it. For example, like if you were to advise an artist on what kinds of data sets they should use, which are freely uh-huh. available to more artists, like which ones can they use um, in order to make the best decisions for themselves in the future? Like, do you have any recommendations? Um, well, I would, again, I would use, any data only as reference. Um, mm-hmm. And at this point in time, I feel like the the data they should be using um, will only be useful if they're actually on that platform very frequently. Mm. Like if, if you're on there less than two or three times a week, it's likely the data doesn't represent you just mm-hmm. as you don't represent the data. Mm. Uh, but if you're on there more than three times, five times a week, then we can look at these data. And I think the most useful platforms, it, it's hard to say, I mean, it's hard to its hard to give an advice based on which platform has the most useful data because it depends on the type of artist you are, it depends on which region you're in, what's trending. Uh, you're going to use different platforms differently. But mm-hmm. with any platforms, um, I think there's a concept that I would as opposed to which data is most meaningful or useful, I think a concept is something I would advise. And the concept is to to really look at data within an extended time length, as opposed to only seven or 30 days. Mm. Mm. But that's, that's contradicting to some artists because they're just starting out. So, right. and and as a result, I feel like for artists that are just starting out, don't even bother looking at your data. Um, <laughs> and, but but you should really be spending the time thinking about um, what your uh, you know what what your plan is. <laughs> well, I mean that's a very bold statement, <laughs> and I think I like it. <laughs> like, yeah, let me let me think about that. Because I want to respond to that. <laughs> Which part? The, um, the not looking that, at your day. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like that's... Because, okay, okay. I think what I'm trying to say is um, rather than 
you know, for for new artists, mm. they're they're always there's there's always the tendency to want to release music very soon and want to release uh, music before anyone else or release it really quickly. Um, but there there's an issue with that, which is if before you release your music, you then think it through. You're basically throwing your music into right. a, 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 a big a, a black hole. Right? Yeah, because um, what what I would ask any artist when we're chatting with them is um, you should at least answer the very basic questions like why you, you should have the reason as to why you're releasing this music you're not releasing for fun mm -hmm. if you're releasing for fun you don't need to release it you just put it you know record it with your iphone and and play it on your loudspeaker at home <laughs> and that that's enough but if you want to release it there should be a proper reason behind it mm -hmm. and you should know your plan is it just one song is it multiple songs in what time span and aside from this release what site support will you be providing to that music you're releasing whether it's online or offline mm -hmm. because it, it's so important to again not to just throw your track into the deep ocean and expect something magically to happen when right. everyone else releasing tracks are either doing the same and not having anything happen or mm -hmm. they're doing the same but they're planning very well mm -hmm. and so just based off of chance, they're likely to have more awareness right, uh, on right. their tracks versus yours. Mm -hmm. But thinking back, a DSP only has one landing page. Who mm -hmm. is going to get that landing page or the limited attractions of people going on that DSP to listen to songs? It's likely the guys that planned versus the guys that are just throwing out a song and, and thinking they're going to have a hit. Thinking yeah. they're hot shit. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very refreshing point of view, but definitely um, very true. I think maybe for entry level artists or artists who are just starting out, maybe the data set is just like not significant at all. But what you do have is maybe you have some connections with the music industry. Maybe you know some people who can help you. And if you want them to help you, then you need to have a plan. You need to have a strategy. And when you are presenting that strategy to them, that's how you get at least a little bit of leverage or at least get your foot in the door. And hopefully that can help you get to a place where um, you can increase the data set because you have more visibility on your content. And then um, once you keep rinsing and repeating that, hopefully you can get to a point where that data becomes significant enough for you to use and plan your next step, especially if that next, uh, especially if that next step um, is exporting your music to another place. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, speaking of another place, since I know you also spent a lot of time in Beijing and also with um, Believe, we work very closely with um, the rest of the Greater China team. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the mainland streaming market as well, because mm -hmm. uh, if we're thinking about it from the perspective of independent artists or maybe like overseas business professionals, they don't know much about the market. To them, it's like a black box and they can't right. They don't know how to access information within it. And sometimes the entry barriers just get a little bit high. So, yeah, like I wanted to hear a little bit about maybe you could give um, like an overview of what your thoughts are about the mainland music market. And um, yeah, how how worth it is it for artists to get involved in this market? Right. So, well, I, I'm not the the expert of mainland music market or mainland streaming market, but I could give my my understanding of how it is right now. And um, in my brain, I, I would categorize the global streaming market as having two ecosystems. Mm -hmm. The first being the global ecosystem and the second uh, being the mainland ecosystem. <laughs> And and I categorize it that way because of what we're always chatting about, like the the normal ecosystem, not not normal ecosystem, but the 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 ecosystem that more foreign artists understand is where we have content creators, distributors, and then channels, and sometimes they overlap, but it's not that frequently that they overlap. 
but then we have the mainland ecosystem, which is still very changing very, very quickly. But the but the system is um, is at the stage where uh, largest distributors are also creating content, uh, and in some senses, they're also distributing contents. Mm-hmm. And also, the big players are more centralized. So if we look at uh, if we look at Taiwan, local DSPs off of the top of our heads, we can name three or four, and then and then we also have the YouTube Music, the Apple, Spotify, whatever. But in mainland, the biggest music streaming platforms at the moment are TME and NetEase, mm-hmm. and they're they're dominating like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so it's more centralized for one, and they're they're also the big players in distribution and content creation. So for that reason, any new players that are trying to break into mainland China will have a much more uh, challenging uh, time understanding and tackling the market mm-hmm. i think i think to sum it up for two reasons first it's unlike anything that they've experienced before which right just now we mentioned is the global uh, ecosystem mm-hmm. and secondly the landscape has large gatekeepers um and by that i mean netease tme their you know their market cap if we look at it it's it's the, the the type of content that these guys want to support, uh, if you want to battle against that, it's it's highly unlikely to succeed in a short time. But if you're willing to devote uh, time and energy and resource into it, then it's another story. So for you, what do you think? Um, let me see how I can phrase this. Like, what do you think are the kinds of artists who are primed, like? for going into the greater China market? I mean, like the mainland China market, like what kinds of artists do you think like, oh, actually this would be a very interesting part that could be added on to their strategy? Okay. Um, well, for start, I want to paint a picture because I think just now we've been talking about a portion of the industry or a, a part, an aspect of the industry, but I want to be clear in the sense that mm. mainland market is very big. Uh, it, if if we look at market size, it, I, I remember it was 800 million USD mm. or, or a bit more. And the whole industry is growing by, as we said, 30 something percent year mm. over year. So there are big opportunities there. It's not, it's not that it's impossible to enter. It's just, it's very hard. If we, if we, it's very hard. If we look at, if we think of it as a game, it's, Super difficult mode. Um, yeah. And, uh, the what type of artist would make sense um, for for the market? Uh, I think we can look at it in two ways. The first way is not just for mainland market, but for any market. If an if an artist of foreign background wants to enter that new market, they better be ready to devote at least the same amount of effort and resource in that market, if not more, mm. uh, compared to the local artists that are also working very hard to break mm. in the market. Because first of all, they have the local advantage, right. the local artists compared to you, who mm. you're, if you're a foreign artist. And if you're not even there in person or spending very, very much amount of time there using their social media, doing online and offline uh, promotion, whether it's organic or paid, if you're not doing any of that, it's highly unlikely to be any of the local artists that are working extremely hard. Mm. So that's that's not just for mainland, but for any market. Right. But I've noticed specifically for mainland, a lot of of our, um, the, the artists that we encounter have an interest in mainland, but have not been there yet or have only visited once or twice, but is not ready to relocate or at least spend significant amount of time there then mm-hmm. if that's the case it's very difficult uh, if we look sh- straight up if we look at the charts i think there are three biggest genres of artists that might be able to make it and that's hip-hop r&b type of pop music and then indie rock these mm-hmm. three types um and the reason behind these three types of genres being able to make it easier than others, I cannot give an answer because uh, if if we were able to give an answer, we would be artists. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, and but um, if if we're thinking about these three type of genres, and off my gut feeling, were to pick one genre, one genre that's that has the easiest, has the most chance of making it in mainland, I would say it's indie rock. Not because I'm an indie rock, I am an indie rock fan, but that that's not the reason. Uh, I think it's because out of these three genres, first let's talk about hip hop. Right, it's it's very deep rooted in words. Yeah. Um, and and words convey local slangs and they expose accents mm. more so than other genres because talk, you know you're talking more often mm-hmm. um, and I feel this makes bridging harder if you're a foreign artist that's mm-hmm. that's one right and second is the the urban R and B pop tracks that type type artists I think usually urban or R and B pop type stuff it's in existence with commercial trends, mm-hmm. but commercial trends are also deep rooted into local cultures. So if we're not if we're not really paying attention to local cultures, it's hard to it's hard to really you know translate that connection cross border. Mm-hmm. But then, but then um, indie rock, on the other hand, uh, likely uh, won't be you know number one or number two on on the on the biggest charts, but you have a better chance of making it simply because um, my 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 understanding with indie rock bands is that um, maybe you're a four piece band or a five piece band, and the vocals or the words is only a part of the music that people are listening to. As a result, you're less you're you're more likely to break cultural barriers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that that's my take on it. Right. I think that's very interesting. And I definitely agree with the indie rock one also because I think that if we're looking at things from an audience perspective, because obviously the audiences want things which are relevant to them. And as you said, the mainland Chinese market is a completely different ecosystem to anything outside of it. So anything that you tell them, like any past successes you've had outside of this market on whatever platforms, they don't care. It doesn't matter to them at all. So you are literally starting from ground zero. But I think with indie rock, there is a little bit of leverage because people who listen to indie rock are more likely to listen to overseas artists, which I think... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, another thing. Whereas I think when we're looking at hip hop and why it's popular in China, it's mostly because of... Um, the rap of China or um, I guess Chinese hip-hop it's not really like I think western hip-hop is still real not really a thing in China like I guess there are rappers who are like really famous and stuff but just because of the way the Chinese market is set up and how hip-hop came to the forefront it came to the forefront because of a reality show and the reality show might not represent hip-hop in the way that western acts do it so it's still considered like a very relevant style of Chinese hip hop. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for urban, it's um, a little bit of the same, but I think pop, as you said, maybe people, the people who are listening to pop, uh, they're using Douyin or they're using Kwai So a lot and they see yeah. the songs coming up or it's some kind of like meme that I don't understand that has been using this song, um, which is what makes it like um, popular. So yeah, like I think that one is also really deeply rooted in um, culture and it's not, it's hard to access because it's not even verbally spoken about culture. It's just something that everyone of a certain age in China just knows. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's really, that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I, I do feel like independent genres um, you would have more of a chance of breaking into the Chinese, the mainland Chinese market. Yeah. Um, okay, so I do have one last question for you. Um, mm-hmm. Given your, I mean, your experience with the streaming market in general and working with lots of different artists, talking to them and advising them, uh, do you have any advice for any artists who have like absolutely no idea how to navigate their streaming and monetize it? So rather, I think... The one advice I would give, which was something we talked about earlier, I think it's so important, so I'm going to say it again, is for the artists 
or for the artist team to have a plan. It sounds it sounds so simple, but it's always it's very often neglected. Mm-hmm. So before the release, they should answer the the basic questions: Why you're releasing music? How many songs? When do you plan to release each song? Like, what's the time span in between? And you have to you have to answer the question behind the question, which means if you answered, you know, I want the time span to be one month by one month by three weeks, then you should also have an answer to why it's one month by one month by three weeks. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a specific reason, or are you just doing it for the sake of it? Mm-hmm. Because if you're doing it for the sake of it, you're gambling. But mm-hmm. if you have a reason behind it, you're so-called investing. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and aside from the release, what site support, what promotion, organic uh, promotion, paid promotion, or any other support, uh, any other type of exposure, are you actively helping yourself do or helping your artists do? Um, I think that's also important because when you don't do anything and you just release a song, you know, it, you, you might win the lottery, but it's likely you won't. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, no matter how good your song is, you know, everyone's busy doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're, you're, you're busy, um, you know, you're busy with Asian Pop Weekly. I'm busy playing my guitar. We're not going to listen to some <laughs> random guy's song you playing Mario on the Kart. internet. <laughs> I'm busy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so. In summary, it's just the artist and or their team needs to understand what the purpose is for releasing their songs and what they're going to do before and after release to support the song during its key window of exposure. It's not, you know, that's also an important point. You can't start doing your thing or suddenly, you know, you have a light bulb and you decide to do something, but the song has been released for six or nine months. That's too late. Right, Um, right. So, yeah, that's... Okay. Have a plan and do it timely. That's my that's my advice. Okay, that's really great. I think I will have to do a worksheet on that for like our <laughs> Patreon. Be like Jim's tips. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for being part of my podcast. <laughs> yeah, thanks really for uh, thanks for chatting with me. Uh, COVID makes everything slow down, and I'm really bored at home, so it was fun. <laughs> No worries. Um, I will see you tomorrow then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jim. Bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Level Up Podcast is brought to you jointly by Blossoming Bridge Creative and Asian Pop Weekly. Be sure to follow on our socials at Asian Pop Weekly and also check out our website if you're looking for more Mandarin or Asian music content. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, be sure to like, subscribe and follow and we'll see you on the next one.